Welcome to Change the Narrative. I'm your host, J.D. Fuller. I'm Susie Younger. An African-American licensed psychotherapist. I'm also a licensed therapist. We talk about the isms. We talk about the phobias. Anything that marginalizes and oppresses. As a white woman, I ask the questions white people are too afraid to ask. Everything we are not and everything we are is because of fear. Through a mental health lens, Susie and I will have difficult conversations with celebrity guests, political activists, and everyone in between. Our mind will tell us whatever we want to believe, but the truth lives in the body, and that's where change occurs. Are you ready to change the narrative? Our next guest is an editor, filmmaker, innovator, and artist. His work as an editor has spanned Emmy Award-nominated television, documentary, film, and commercials. He's worked with everyone from Adidas and Apple, contributed to Kanye West's first three fashion launches. He eventually and very naturally began directing and recently directed and wrote his first extraordinary film that is in festivals right now called An Occurrence at Arverne. Welcome, Robert Broadhurst. Thank you. Wait, Robert, did we say that right? It's Arverne. No, no, it was closer before. It's Arverne. It's the weirdest name and probably the worst name I could have given it. But it was an homage to another film. It's the neighborhood in the Rockaways in Queens, in New York, where we shot the film. Yeah. Oh, Some people okay, think it's like it. a French film. Some people think it's yeah. Arvini and it's like Italian. It super cool. That's good that I didn't embarrass myself alone. There are many others who screwed it up. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, I'm the one who embarrassed no, myself. You got, no, you got it closer than anybody off the bat. Yeah. Look at that, Suze. That's why you do the introductions. All right. First of all, I'm probably going to cheese this whole podcast because I'm so happy to see this guy. It's killing me. I, I just could stare at you, but I'm going to get on with business. So I knew you in a different time in your life. And the first thing I'd like to kind of put in positioning for the audience is tell me who you were the last time I saw you and who you I are now. I was trying to think when the last time I saw you was. For sure, it was in high school. I don't know that I saw you after I graduated, although I might have come back if you were still around to say hi. I don't think, I think the last time I saw you was in yeah, high school. Yeah, that's bananas. So I was, I got it, like a preppy private school kid in Greenwich, Connecticut. This is a life that is like, feels surreal that it was part of my existence, but it was. I first actually met you when you were the executive director of the Arch Street Teen Center, that's home of the right. smoking room. And because kids won't come if they can't smoke cigarettes. <laughs> That's what the team board exactly. said. Exactly. And we came and we smoked and, and it was great. And then, and then you, were, you were working at a school that my sister went to and you kind of had an open office policy there. And so like the highlight of my day would be swinging by your office and just hearing what you had to say or you indulging what I had to say and, and that sort of thing. But I, to say that you were a monumental figure in my, in my adolescent life would be an understatement. Oh, you're going to get me all choked up here. <sighs> that means a lot it's to me, bad. Robert. It really does. It means so much to me. Okay, I'm going to try to get myself together. So tell us who you are now. How have you changed over the years? What has happened? I mean, don't get too detailed because there's other sure, questions. For sure. I mean, it's, you know, it, fortunately, it's tough to gauge my own change. I mean, look, I've, I've encountered a lot, you know, a lot more adversity than I had as a privileged teenager in Greenwich, Connecticut. You know, I'm, I'm married now, which obviously speaks to adversity. <laughs> no, I, I'm very happily married. I've, you know, I've 
I've seen, I've experienced a lot more than I had that. I was, I was to my thinking now about as sheltered as a person could be. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's interesting. Although I'm sure at the time I fancied myself pretty wise and worldly, like hundred percent. Right. Yeah, for sure. But I also think it was, you know, it was relative to who and where you were, you were, you yeah, know, I might've been maybe like a little more thoughtful than a, mm-hmm. a couple of my compatriots, but compared to having like lived life and experienced that, you know, I was completely sheltered. And, yeah, I get yeah. that. So a lot of the things that we're going to ask you today, I know who you are at the core of who you are, but people don't. And so I'm going to be digging as you know me Please. to dig to show the true you, you know, looking at your website and all of the impressive work you've done thus far, you know, one might say, why, why change what you're doing? You know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Is that how it goes? Yeah. So what propelled you to focus on what you are focusing on now, the direction you're heading in now currently? Well, I had, you know, I'd always wanted to be a filmmaker. That's the trajectory I always saw for myself starting probably late high school. I didn't go to undergrad film school. I went to a liberal arts college. And then I just kind of like hustled around the city for a few years. And I found myself at a place where I felt quasi rudderless. And so I did something I never thought I would ever do, which was go to film school. And I went to film school and I came out and the abstraction of my student debt became like just a tsunami of reality. I didn't have, I didn't have the, the sort of financial bandwidth, let's say, that some of the other kids might have had coming out. So I just had to get paid. So I started editing. I got an agent for editing because that was like the quickest way to an income. And the idea was, I'll do this, you know, I'll hone my skills. I will build the base uh, financially for me to be able to make my own work, to write, etc. But, you know, the pressure of, of debt, which is a whole other topic, but and it's a really big one. The pressure of debt plus the, the sheer difficulty of getting really good at something so that you can be reliably employed at it. That's its whole thing. And so that's a lot of work. And then you wind up saying like, why haven't I written anything? Why am I going to like bougie dinners as my reward instead of like sitting at home and writing and funding my own films? Well, because I'm human. And it got to a point where I couldn't, I just couldn't abide that any longer. I had been working in advertising and fashion and all these things. And I'd had these, I'd had certain super glamorous opportunities and a lot of really unglamorous ones. And I got to a point, actually, what happened was, I think I just worked on like a big Apple campaign and I just got married and I thought, I'm ready now for anything. Bring it on, world. And like every job for a couple months went away. And I thought, okay, advertising is done with me. Fashion is done with me. That is that. Evidently, I'm going to starve. And I do not want to starve as a guy who works in advertising, as a guy who works in fashion. That is not cool. The only cool way to starve, as we all know, is as an artist. So it was time. And I really, and so I was like, all right, I need to level up now. I need to put some skin in the game. And I knew, I knew how hard it would be because I know how hard filmmaking is, especially, you know, I made a short film. We should clarify that this is not a future film. And so I knew if I was going to undertake that sort of pursuit, it, like, it had to count. It really had to count because what if I get hit by a bus? And like, that's the only record of what I cared about in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I sat down to write and the film is what came out. Thanks to a lot of reading and educating I've been doing for myself in the years prior. To answer your question in a much shorter way, uh, it was always filmmaking. It was always directing. 
it was this film because I felt a responsibility and an obligation as a white person uh, who's enjoyed not only like white privilege, but privilege privilege a lot of my life to contribute to the conversation and hopefully pull the veil back for other white people as, as black people had for me, thanks to my reading, you know, their books, et cetera, et cetera. And sort of, that's it. Yeah. So, you know, you were always this guy that had so much more depth than you shared with everyone. I felt very honored that I was one of the ones that, you know, got to see who you really were. And, you know, that comes out, comes out in your work. When I'm going through everything, I see you. But this piece, I felt you. That's a lot of who you are at the core. And so we're going to dig in a little bit deeper. So a Vimeo staff pick premiere, that's a little something. Yeah, right? that was, that was that you know, it was when I set out to make it, I thought I'll make it. Hopefully it'll be good. And by the way, there's a whole saga of the making that we can talk about another time. But I kind of had to make it twice okay. because the first time we attempted oh. it, I had cast a very charismatic comedian whose material was very much aligned with this material. He, he just didn't memorize his lines, etc. And so it was like kind of this heartbreaking experience. And then I had to really, I mean, we sh- maybe we should get into that later, depending on your questions. I'm sorry. What the, I'm a No, no, no. no. That, that's it. And, and so... Yeah. So there's more to the question, but just side note, the one who you ended up going with. Curtis perfect. is fantastic. I, you know, he's, he's on the Wu-Tang show perfect. right now on Hulu. Oh, also okay. on the Michael Che show. And where he plays okay. Michael Che's cop brother, which I find ironic and utterly <laughs> yeah, enjoyable. He's great. Much. He had had, I mean, he, he signed on after he interrogated me rightly for many hours, like a week before we shot. And five days before we shot, I think it was five days before we shot, he had his first child with his partner. That was his level of dedication to this. And he knew he was sort of crossing the aisle to, he he knew it and he discussed it with his partner and he showed up having slept zero the first day. And he was just incredible. I mean, completely different. Well, so that brings me to the next question, which is what was your experience being, you know, a white male trying to tell this story authentically about this blackmail. I mean, just to keep it very basic, you know, it's like that in and of itself is, could be a, a highway to disaster. Oh, 100%. Yeah. So, yeah. Right? And when I initially wrote it, I didn't, it just felt right to me. This, and the script was bizarrely more comedic and more, much more, it manipulated the audience a bit more, which is why we okay. initially cast the comedian. And then it changed with Curtis. Curtis has a lot of like inherent gravitas. His, his thing isn't really humor, although it can be very funny. I wasn't aware of the potential peril so much when I wrote it. I just sort of wrote it and I was like, of course, it's great and let's do it. I was represented at the time by a commercial production company here. And they had always said, of course, if you ever make a short film, we'll support you, meaning financially and via production. And so I was, of course, like, great. So I wrote this thing and I said, let's do it. Let's do it right now. They indulged me to an extent. We did that sort of what became a test shoot. It was very clear once I had assembled the footage, and we only shot about 30% of the script. I mean, that's how much of a disaster that shoot was, that it needed to be reshot and it needed to be recast. Eventually, I, I locked the location again, paid for it the whole deal after getting it approved by this company, paid, et cetera. The next day, the company said, we can't fund this. Okay, I understand. You see, there's no commercial appeal. This is not for you. Got it. But thank you for lending me a producer to produce this. That was the plan. Mm-hmm. So a week later, 
as I realized like, okay, I'm going to need to crowdfund. I'm going to need, need to make all these moves. They called me and they said, you're going to need to find your own producer. So I was cool having a circumstantial producer who was white. Like I'm working with this company. They gave me a producer. He is white. Okay. I'm kind of off the hook because of that arrangement. The second they took sure. him away, I had to do some real soul searching, obviously, but it was very clear to me that I would never make the film. I could never make the film without somebody at, you know, an equal level, a high level producer, right? Who was a member of the community that this story is about in most effects, right? So then it was like, like a mad dash to find uh, producers. And so it was a process of like, you know, multiple interrogations where like I would meet with people and fewer people than I would have liked because of systemic racism that has prevented people of color from rising to those ranks of producer, et cetera. So I would meet with people and, and the first thing they'd want to know is what's your deal, man? Why are you making this? Who are you? And completely fair. And so it was like a lot of long conversations. One, I think thought the script was really interesting until she found out I was white and then we met and it was really tough for me because she, she said I was problematic and it was problematic. And, and I didn't, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't sleep for a week. Should I even make this? thing mm. and eventually i actually found there were three people who wanted to do it and i worked wound up working with charles hayes the fourth who was fantastic okay. it was yeah it was perilous and i did have to sort of convey my bona fides and where i was coming from like the heart of where i was coming from and what i hoped it might do as a film because it's you know it is a film i would say it meets a bare minimum it's got a veneer of sort of entertainment value but essentially it's a litmus test yeah, yeah no absolutely yeah. Absolutely. And I just want to jump in there because, you know, what you did was you managed to not whitewash it, which just so impressed me. It impressed me so much that it made me sad and angry. You know, I felt my racial trauma triggered. And so that that raised a lot of, you know, obviously historical feelings. You know, I'm just going to I'm going to tell you what what a student said to me. I once had a white student say to me when we were talking about racism, he said to me, it's just not that deep for us. I did a white fishbowl and had them discuss racism. And at the end, that's what he Mm. summed up. I can't tell you how provocative that was. That was so huge for me. And I thought of that after I saw this because it felt like you felt something here, you know, like, like I did. It's more like Like I did or like, the. yeah, yeah, no, like you did. You know, like you've, it felt, it seemed to me, I know I felt the emotions, but it seemed to me in this short, you managed to display something that was felt and not thought. Thank you. You know, far be it for me to say the most horrible thing, which is I empathize and, you know, uh, you know. Yeah, yeah, don't do it. You know, but It's funny also that you say that. In terms of writing the character, I wrote him as myself so that I could never be accused of writing a Black character. <laughs> I was like, I'm just going to write him as me. and But it's me with dark skin in that scenario. That's pretty genius right there. You know? And that is, that is the only difference. For me, I walk into that scenario and I was in a very similar scenario in that very house because that is my friend's house. Mm. I had stayed there. They had a rule. It was kind of a neighborhood rule to close the blinds and things when you leave. I had come all the way back to Brooklyn from Queens, which for anybody who doesn't know, it's like an hour on the train. It's enough that you don't want to have to turn around and go back to close the curtains. (laughs) 
And I did. And trying to be a good friend and respectful of the home, I was like, all right. So I got back on the train and I went back and I was doing it and the alarm goes off and I couldn't find the key. And I was so keenly aware of how fortunate I was as I felt people looking at me sort of like goofing around trying to get inside the house. It was like, I could be dead right now. Dead. I felt something in that moment. I also... Given, you know, you have a sense of the education I got, Denise. Um, I went to, you know, what are considered very good schools. You were lucky if they taught you beloved. Lucky. And I wasn't taught beloved. Like, whatever. The teachers I had happened to not think it was a thing. Here's more J.D. Salinger for you. Here's whatever. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't until, like, easily, definitely my 30s that I started reading James Baldwin. And I read... Uh, Ijeoma Aluo's So You Want to Talk About Race and books like this. And so I had been thinking about it for a long time because in a way, how can you not? Like at some point, it's like you have to recognize that you're in the matrix, right? So you recognize it. But then reading those books was like pulling back the matrix and, and really seeing it. And once you start thinking about it all the time in that way, you have to feel something. And hopefully, as a filmmaker, you can convey that. I, I want to say, like, I'm sorry that it was triggering for you. I'm sorry that it's triggering for any viewer. And that is like a really, really crappy byproduct of the process. Yeah. I didn't know then, and I'm not sure if I would now if I wanted to make the same film a way around it. Yeah, I, you know, it's complicated because, you know, what you created is an opportunity for someone who doesn't know to not ever know, but to have a moment of an idea of what knowing would be like. Yeah. And that's complicated because somebody has to be sacrificed in the process. You know, that's what white supremacy is. You know, it's the the sacrificing. Now, in terms of what you're doing is you did pull back the veil in a very personal way. This guy is completely lovable and doesn't hopefully have you go into the stereotypes, but in the end you're left, you know, thinking, and you say, you know, I don't know who wouldn't feel there's most white people who don't feel it. So the idea that you felt something, I think it was genius that you wrote it for yourself, wrote yourself as a character that that's so smart because it was personal and the ability to make it personal and then juxtapose it with the reality you show the conflict and the difference. And that's just, it's just so, so smart. So well Thank done. Um, I want to say that, um, so for white people, the uh, potential suspenseful experience, right? In that moment, we've already been talking about this a little bit, but I'm just going to try to sum it up again. You know, there's that, that suspenseful moment that I think, I guess, you know, most white viewers would be like, <gasps> you know, in a regular movie. So like for the majority, I think that would be the reality. But for the global majority, you know, known as people of color, you're kind of using a day-to-day traumatic experience and it could be perceived as a marketing tool to display your skill set. I want people to know you better than that. I want people to know that I know that that's not what you're doing and who you are. Um, because I just know you like that and I love you like that and I'll never stop loving you like that. So I need to know, I need to, I want you to tell them why that's not you. A very simple question. Very simple question. (laughs) Um, It's a marketing tool for me. I don't know what to say. Uh, 
I'm kidding, Denise. <laughs> no kidding. Uh, I didn't want to spit my water uh, out. I kind of wanted you to. Okay. <laughs> it well, it's interesting that you say that because, and this is really weird now in retrospect. So I wrote it in late 2018. Took the first shot at making it in late 2018. Shot it properly in early 2019, like March. Okay. At the time, I mean, I would say pretty much unanimously, every white person was like, what is the point of this? It was a very post-racial, mm-hmm. post-Obama. This could make me feel uncomfortable and it's moot now. Wow. Kind of thing. Like it's superfluous. Mm, yeah, I agree. Um, and so that was like the sort of the white take on it. Like, sure, people maybe wanted to help me make it because they believed in me as a filmmaker or whatever. But like in terms of the content itself, they thought like, meh, what are you doing here? Black people the producers I talked to, et cetera, were like, are you jumping on board some kind of a train? Are you trying to be on on trend here? Are you like, are you being a savvy guy who makes, who knows, don't make the coming of age like white kid story right now, make a story about a person of color because that's that's where the eyeballs are. Yeah, I don't I don't know what to say other than that wasn't my intention in any way, shape or form. And if I had been really trying to appeal to the white majority, clearly I wouldn't have stuck with it and done it. And moreover, I think that as much praise as it gets when it gets praised, which is always great, people haven't said, like, this is a great beginning to a feature or a series. What's next? So, mm. you know, it, the, I guess the fact that it's a failed marketing tool doesn't mean I didn't intend for it to be a great one, but I, I didn't happen okay. to. It was something that I was met with so much resistance. Like people said, we're not going to pay for it. We're not going to produce it. There's no appeal for it. And so it was, it really, it came down to me fighting for it. There were people very close to me in my life who really didn't understand what I was doing or why. It was really hard. I'll tell you what, if I wanted to make like a great marketing tool and be on trend, I would have done it a year later. You know, I would probably would have, yeah. Chauvin just got sentenced. We got Juneteenth. I got yeah, yeah forever, right. you know i would have done it later and, right. and it would have been a lot easier this was really it was like wow. i met with resistance every step of the way i think that says it robert i think that's that's it that's that's what i want people to see i want them want them to see that truth i don't want them to write you I off appreciate that. as just Thank another you. they should write me off for other reasons but i think lots yeah, of other reasons of, we could go over them but that, that's not it, it down that's i get it on. yeah <laughs> I'm going to let Susie get in here. You actually already answered the first part of Susie's question. So we could just jump to the next part about the responsibility and telling it. I think that's the important part of that question. What do you think, Susie? Well, I'm going to start with a little bit of what we started with. Um, Mm -hmm. First of all, thank you for that film. JD and I watched it together. And I think that I was silent for the first 10 minutes afterwards. It's really stunning. So there are a lot of people, white people, making money off of racism. I could give you a list, including Brene Brown, I'll just say it, Robin D'Angelo, a lot. Tell us, tell the audience why yours is different, what you want people to know. First, I'm not making money off it. (laughs) Number number one. one. Major differentiator and... uh, so in, in terms of, I can't say other than, I don't know how Brene Brown is monetizing racism right now. That is an example. No, and, and D'Angelo, 
I understand the criticisms there. I don't really play in that sandbox. So I, it's hard for me to draw a distinction between me and people I don't know that much about. I, yeah. you know, here's the thing. A short film is, unless it's very cynically undertaken, it's like, you know, it's not going to be a moneymaker. It's not going to be something that gets you great acclaim. So it's something you do, mm-hmm. whatever it happens to be. It could have nothing to do with race or any activist sort of topic, but it's going to be a product ideally of passion. And the expectation has to be basically zero. But, you know, I think you said something about the timing, right? Because Brene Brown is known for a lot of things. She's not known for racial work. But as you said, the timing, she's got an African-American co-writer and produces this whole thing on race. And so that's the timing piece that you were talking about is like, right? And a money-making piece because, of course, Brene Brown's talking about it, right? Yeah. I mean, this was, yeah, you know, I wrote it almost two years before the murder of George Floyd. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't, even once the film was made, uh, we, I tried to be responsible. Like I do respect the audience and I want to make sure the audience is affected and that I'm not pandering and that I, that the sort of pacing and the rhythm and the uh, distribution of information across the narrative is tight. So we sent it out to, you know, maybe a hundred people before ever sending it to festivals all demographics, people I knew, people I didn't know, friends of friends, people who worked for the people at the sound mix, like anybody that we could get to fill out the survey, we got to fill it out. Some people found it powerful. A lot of people found it powerful and they gave it generally high rankings and that was nice. But there was a clear demarcation point between not even Ahmad or Brianna, but like George Floyd. Up until... so. From the writing of it, where there was this sort of like, why would you make this? What is the point? This post-racial take on the redundancy of, uh, you know, an issue that's been that's been put to bed because we had a black president. Okay. Right. So there was that in like the sort of writing pre-production production phase, and then it was done. And this is before the pandemic and all that. I would say the general feedback, if I had to sum it up, was that it was it was very well crafted, but quasi pointless. Wow. And the, the demarcation point was George Floyd. So I started getting text messages from the people I did know who had seen it after George Floyd. And as everybody's social media feeds filled up with sil- white silence equals violence and all this sort of stuff, you know, I started getting text messages saying every household in America needs to see this film. And the yeah. feedback went from like sort of a patronizing, well-crafted, but pointless to masterfully mm-hmm. crafted and essential. I, I can't take pride in my timing. My timing was my timing. It's what I needed to do at the time. Culture changed. And people have said things that are extraordinarily callous about the film and the timing. For instance, after George Floyd, as protests were happening, protests were happening throughout the country and world. Wow, isn't this serendipitous? What the fuck? Exactly. Like screenshotting texts like this that I get from people who are thoughtful, great people. And I would just write back, like, that's not the word I would use. And let's maybe chill for a while. It's, it's crazy. So I can't speak to the people who are, who are monetizing or shifting their brands thanks to the shift in culture and the opportunities there and the sudden woke washing of all the corporations. I can only speak to the timing that I had that was arbitrary thanks to my timing as a, as a human being evolving on planet Earth. You are 
is so clearly so passionate and so talented. It's funny because I just had this image of like the montage of all the voices and all the heads of 2018 juxtaposed with the voices of the same people and what they had to say in 2021 or 2022, to your point. It's tough. Yeah. I also, you know, I should also say part of the reason I made this I felt a responsibility, all the things that I've already said, but like I historically have been a pretty shitty activist, boots on the ground activist, partially because mm-hmm. even in a classroom setting, I might not want to be the guy who's talking, you know, I might, mm-hmm. I might want to be the guy who's observing and taking it in and developing my opinions and maybe my actions sort of behind the scenes, but I was never a great vocal boots on the ground activist. And the one thing I was confident that I did have were these filmmaking skills that I had paid dearly for and uh and developed over the years and so how could i create a vessel for my activism using what i did have that would outlast me at a protest or whatever but it was really i mean when george floyd happened the murder of george floyd in in its aftermath i was sitting there like building a website and getting this thing into festivals and writing press kits and doing posters and like putting thousands and thousands of hours into this tiny little microscopic thing that i made so that i could have the greatest, longest, most impactful life. I was not posting about it on social media because that would have felt really crass and self-serving. Hey, trending topic. I've got just the piece of content for you. It really like it grossed me out. So when it was a Vimeo staff pick, yes, I did promote that because that was a really big deal for the film. But otherwise, you know, there's still not a post on my on my feed about it. But meanwhile, every white person, but especially white people, I know for a fact have never given a thought to racism, they're, they're posting silence is violence, et cetera. All these sort of accusatory, non-inclusive, self-aggrandizing, self-pedestaling sort of things. What's and the- I'm sitting there going like, I don't think you understand. I haven't slept for two weeks because I don't know how to build websites. I'm trying to build the best website. And at some point I had to link to every like anti-racist resource I've ever encountered on the planet for, on the website. And I was like, all right, this is too much. But I was sitting there doing all of this work behind the scenes and reading all of these hypocrites, obviously, saying that my silence was violence. I don't know the, the, the conclusion to that. It was, there was a lot of dissonance between people's, you know, what, the, what they were saying and, and how they had historically behaved and how they would, of course, go back to behaving. And for instance, like what I was up to. But this was, for me, my best shot at the time at activism. Well, I can appreciate also what you said about the classroom. I may have been, because I was in JD's classroom, I may have been more of the vocal person, but I found in real life that it's really hard to be the boots on the ground. That's my privilege and very, very aware of it. And so I'm wondering if there's some part of you that also the seeds of Denise were planted in you early on. I mean... Yes, and in this way, but also in so many other ways, Denise. Yeah, I mean... That's not my question, by the way. That's no, Susie's question. I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Susie asked this question. <laughs> How about influence? Denise, again, the, the influence of Denise overall cannot be understated. Would I have written the script and thought, thank you, Denise? I didn't, <laughs> I can tell you. But have I felt her influence and everything? And as I was educating myself, did I think of Denise? And did I think of the insanity of the context in which I met her? Literally, in the whitest of white worlds. 
insane that you were even there. That is like, that's like parachuting into enemy territory and like offering people croissants. Mm. Like I think back to you in that context and obviously you're one of the stronger people I've, I've ever met, but like that is like a, that's, it's really impressive. And so when I think of, you know, you're reading James Baldwin and then you think of Denise in that world, how can you not be affected? How can you not take that sort of retrospectively? And it brings you back to the moment when you're like, oh my God, like how is she empathizing with me as a kid? What is that business? That's crazy. This is a superhuman person. And yeah, so I would say in many inarticulate ways that yes, she... She influenced this indirectly and directly over time to the moment when I wrote it and when I made it and every decision that, that came with following through. Yes. That's so beautiful. I love that. I'm going to use the on me. reference. What'd you say? I'm going to use the croissant reference. That's beautiful. <laughs> I love it. Robert, clearly you are so talented, but let me ask you a little bit of a different question. What do you want people to know about your soul? about my soul? That's a great question that I've never considered. I mean, I would hope that I would want them to know about my soul. What I hope is true of everybody's actual soul, regardless of their presentation, is that, you know, ultimately it's loving and generous, regardless of how things come out. Yeah. I love that. Tell us what's next for you and where people can find you. Um, What's next for me? Probably more commercial work because that is one of the main ways I make a living. Um, I've been writing new material that is different but similar. And so I hope to make either a short or a feature um, in the next year or two, uh, another one or a feature, which would be a, a much bigger deal, obviously. They can find me on Vimeo slash Robert Rodhurst. They can find me on Instagram the very creatively titled handle at Robert Broadhurst. And I have a couple of websites. So if you just Google my name, they'll probably come up. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thanks it was really me. wonderful. Seven minute film and we've yeah. talked for many more minutes than seven and that is shocking and amazing. <laughs> well, I'm going to turn it back over to JD. Okay. You know, I just want to emphasize again, you know, what you did in terms of keeping the white saviorism out of this short. It was just so important and so smart. And I have so much, just so much respect for you as a human being and now as a creative, which I always knew you were. I'd like to say I knew before everybody else. What'd you say? I'm already crying. Can we were sniffing? You know, I'm going to get choked up. You know, you said you wanted to, to make me proud, which is crazy, but I couldn't be more proud of you if I tried. I am so proud of you. Thank you. You know, I, I love you, man. I, love I really you. do. Thank you. And um, I was shocked that you even knew I had a short film. I like followed you on Instagram and you were like, should we talk about your film? And I was like, she knows I made a film. I literally was like standing up. She knows. How does she know? That's great. So you've said this already, you know, in different ways, but I want you to say it finally in your own way. What does changing the narrative mean to you? In the case of the film, and generally I think in life, it's about first building an awareness of the narrative so that it can be changed. For, mm-hmm. for people 
who watch my film, you know, what is the takeaway? You hope the takeaway is an awareness of, of whatever they brought to it. So if you have not shined a light on your darkness, you're never going to deal with it. And meanwhile, it's probably mm. at the gym, pumping iron, getting stronger. Okay. So it's, it's yeah, I would, I would say that in terms of changing the narrative, like start by understanding the narrative, start by understanding your role in the narrative, like especially us as white people, there's a lot of work to be done. Despite the fact that my film did trigger an official Juneteenth holiday and a Chauvin sentencing, <laughs> I don't think we can deny this. We, we, we all, I mean, you've got you've to deal with the shit. You've got to acknowledge it. There's so much resistance. There's so much cognitive dissonance. And there's so much incentive to ignore. Um, exactly. You've really got to be active and you've really got to be ready to accept and own your role in it. You've got to own the racism, regardless of whether you think you're a quote ally or, you know, a staunch anti-racist. Like you can't use those things to deny um, the racism that you're a part of, that you've perpetuated, unless you're actively changing yourself to begin with. You're not going to change the world unless you change yourself. You know, mm. we're going to continue being in a very precarious position that hurts everybody. It really does. Even those who benefit in the long run, you know, you're diminishing love, propagating fear, and that is a lose-lose for the universe, really. That is so on point. I have nothing to add. That's so on point. It's been a pleasure to crawl inside that mind of yours. It's always been a warm, fuzzy place for me. And I'm pleased to say that that hasn't changed. You still bring a smile to my face and a tear to my eye, and you warm my heart. I love you so much. Now, there's one thing I have to request, okay? It's two things. I lie. It's two things. I'm on the East Coast for now. I'm in New York. We have to find a way to meet up. You're in New York? <laughs> until December. <laughs> until December. Yeah. That's yeah, number one. That's big number one. Uh, so we, yeah. So we have to do that. And number two, when you get even more famous and I'm talking to your agent instead of talking Never. you... You better find a way to let me talk to you to bring you back to be wherever I am so we can share some space together and, and talk because we could do this endlessly. You will sure. never talk to my agent. <laughs> All right. You have, you have the I bat love phone. that. <laughs> I have the bat phone. Okay. You do have the bat phone. But now you see why I wanted to wait till the show to see you, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah, right? Yes. I was like, I, 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 I wanted just to want to catch up. Well, she's got her reasons. <laughs> I always have a yeah, reason. I know, I know. <laughs> you are amazing. Super happy to spend this time with you. Please come back, seriously. And thank you so much for making thank time Thank you both. This was incredible. I, it, was, it was and will always be an honor. And I love you. And thank you. Okay. See, See you ya. later. Bye. Katie and I want to thank our fabulous producers at I Am Music Group. And for all of you out there who want to do your own podcast, go to IamMusicGroup.com and the team will hit you back. Please be sure to like, subscribe, and follow wherever you get your podcasts. And also, leave us a review and let us know what you think. Thank you for listening to Change the Narrative with J.D. Fuller. 